1: This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A mob, James Baldwin wrote, is not autonomous. It executes the real will of the people who rule the state. The slaughter in Birmingham, Alabama, for example, was not merely the action of a mob. The crowds in Matthew choose their champion because Pilate demands victory. Pilate, in turn, wants what the people want because, like his wife, he grasps desperately for what Caesar has to offer. In the end, everyone wants what Caesar wants, the Lord's execution. So Baldwin was right. The mob carries out the will of the state. In Matthew... The will of the state is expressed in the person of Pilate who executes the Lord to secure Caesar's place on the seat of Elohim. Dumb move, Caesar. Really dumb. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 19 to 23, wishing all of you a very Merry Christmas. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark
0: Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 412 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the play on language with the name Bar Abbas, son of the father. And the hypocrisy, the scandal of Pilate daring to sit on the judgment seat and separate out Jesus from Bar Abbas. We keyed in on this wordplay, but you made a point, Richard, that helps expose the sin of the ochlos more fully, which feeds the sin of Pilate. The crowds, the Roman crowds, love their champion. The crowds want to cheer for someone who has a godlike status. So the name Son of the Father, like the name Son of God in human fleshly terms, is the name they want to cheer for. So on the one hand, who is Pilate to discern between Jesus, who is the one whom God calls his son because he obeys the Torah? Or this other guy, bar Abbas, who's a criminal, who is Pilate to discern who the true son of the father is before the time? How can you tell the difference between Jesus, a prostitute, and the thief? You can't, Pilate. On the other hand, the crowd has made their choice. They want to root for the guy with the title Son of the Father. That's the trick in Scripture. That's why, as Father Paul points out in the rise of Scripture, you have a difference between Yahweh, who functions as the local deity, the face of Elohim, the universal deity, to undermine the ego of Israel. This is very important because if Zeus is your local deity, or one of the Ba'alim is your local deity, when your local deity conquers another city, then you are victorious, and you get to dominate the people of the other city and impose your language, as Alexander did with his Greek. But Scripture doesn't allow that, just like it didn't allow the writers of Scripture to impose their language on the Greeks, which is what gave rise to scriptural Hebrew. Likewise, the people of Israel in the story of the Bible cannot impose themselves, and they cannot claim the victory of Elohim over the nations for themselves, which is why they're under the boot of Yahweh, who is the face of Elohim for Israel. It's very powerful, this distinction, which you can't pick up on unless you're hearing scripture in Hebrew. Why do I mention this here, Richard? Because crying out and cheering for, quote, the son of the father, from the perspective of the Roman mob, the Roman crowd, the ochlos, it's like we're in the arena and Caesar is throwing bread out to the circus. Crying out for the son of the father is the crowd demanding we want Elohim, we don't want Yahweh, so that when we get our victory we can smash everybody because they're crying out for blood. It's like the gladiator circus. It's all about the lust for power and blood and vengeance. And Pilate, Pilatos, because he is no righteous judge, and is only interested in his own glory, is ultimately going to try to hide behind his wife, I don't know, suck his thumb, and eventually do whatever's popular with the people or wash his hands. I don't know what he's going to do, Rich, but he's not going to
0: do the right thing. The lust for power and of blood, I couldn't summarize it any better, Father. This is where the ochlos wants blood without taking responsibility. It's all Pilate's fault, right? Pilate's the one doing it. And Pilate wants power and blood, but he doesn't want responsibility. Oh, you know, it was the people who decided. And we see this dance happening to this day. These people in the story were grateful for the power and strength of Rome because it showed that the will and the favor of the gods was upon them, which meant that they must be righteous. So, their prosperity reflected the good will and the good graces of the gods. And we see this attitude persisting to the present day. As long as we are strong and powerful, we are righteous. That's how the argument goes. This is why a country, to show how righteous it is, has to put military bases in as many countries on the face of the globe as possible. Because this is how they show how righteous they are. Now, some people might think that's ironic. Okay, but that's how life works. Now, these people, the Ohlos, want blood. And if their authorities agree with them, Their authorities are not only following the law, they are the law. They're the judge of the law. So therefore, the desire of the people must be good and righteous. And so everyone, at the end of the day, can feel good because they liberated a person. The son of the father it was because of them that they liberated the son of the father. And Pilate feels good because he allows the people to set one of their people free on this holy day. So, he can feel good, and everyone can feel good about freeing and giving Barabbas the liberation that they can offer him. Yet, This Jesus remains not only imprisoned, but sentenced to death. Jesus, nevertheless, constantly teaches. He remains silent when people are investigating him, when they are posing questions to him, trying to get answers out of him. He's not gonna answer your deposition. Even with a lawyer in the room, he's not gonna answer your deposition. He's not. You're not going to depose Jesus. But when Jesus wants to teach, he will teach, and it doesn't matter who's there, doesn't matter what they hold in their hand, whether an olive branch or a sword, he will teach. And you and I were talking before, Father, that sometimes when you teach, you dread teaching because you go in knowing that it's going to start a fight, It's going to start an argument. It's going to make people upset. And unless you are fortifying yourself emotionally, you have to go in those situations and just say like, look, you guys aren't even having the right conversation. The conversation you're having is stupid. Or actually it's not stupid. It's blasphemous. And you have to start with that. If people want to disagree with you, let them disagree. But if you're going to teach the gospel, you have to go in and say, you're not doing what Scripture is saying. When you're talking about acquiring the mind of the church and Paul says, I have the mind of Christ and the church at Corinth is harlots, you know, the, the way you start the conversation is say, acquiring the mind of the church might mean you're becoming more of a harlot. Because when I read about the churches of Corinth and of Philippi, <laughs> etc., I see harlots every time.
1: Might mean, Richard? If you're scriptural, might mean? There's no might. (laughs) Technically, what you're saying is correct. Who wants to acquire the mind of the church at Corinth? Are you nuts? Which church in the New Testament do you want to think
0: like? The way that you solve that problem, Father, is you create an abstract church that's better than the churches in the New Testament, that's different from the churches of the New Testament, that is more obedient, but the question is, do you end up the opposite of Corinth, or do you end up the same as Pilate? Do you end up the same as righteous because of the power that you wield? The more power you wield, the more righteous you must be, because the favor and the grace of the gods shine on you. That gives me the creeps.
1: Can we hear Scripture now?
0: (laughs) I would love to hear more of Scripture at this point.
1: While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Notice that the reference of her dream is not whether or not it's correct to execute Jesus. It's whether or not she suffers. People like to talk about the fact that she was somehow doing the right thing and see Father Mark dreams, blah, blah, blah. The dream is just a literary mechanism please, can we move past this whole business about dreams? The Romans were insane. Roman religion was insanity. The whole point of Scripture was to erase Roman religion, not build it. And though her advice was correct, that it is incorrect and unjust to execute Jesus, she has no right to say that he is righteous. And her basis for saying that he is righteous is her own fear and selfishness because she wants to protect herself. Matthew keeps hitting on this point that no one may judge before the time. So even though she's pulling him away from judging against Jesus, she herself is introducing a different kind of false human judgment.
0: Who is she to say that Jesus is righteous because of a dream? Are you kidding me? This is such a funny scene because you're right. Her dream is no reference, first of all. It's not scripture. It's not based on anything that we could see as authoritative in any way. Yet, there are a few people in this pericope who do not have space for For an innocent person. It reminds me of the scene with Judas, where he says, I turned over an innocent person. And the chief priests don't care. And Judas judges himself and kills himself. Okay, that's a different issue, because he judges himself. But he is the one who says that Jesus was innocent. Judas is no judge. Judas is no reference, but he testifies on behalf, at least, of Jesus' innocence. This woman, again, she can't judge whether he is just or not. She's not a judge. But significantly, it was when her husband was sitting on the seat of judgment that she said to him and said, don't even preside over this. The assumption is that there is a higher court that's in charge of this one. And if you're wrong and you can't overturn your judgment and the appeals court isn't called in, then you're going to look bad. So the message I'm understanding from this, from Matthew, is that even the Gentiles without Torah are able to tell the difference between someone who's worthy of death and who isn't. There's been zero evidence against Jesus given up to this point for Pilate to convict Jesus even on the basis of Gentile courts. Yet he kills him in spite of the warning that his wife gives him because of the power he wields on the seat of judgment. On the seat of judgment, he needs to make some kind of judgment, guilty or innocent, and his wife is saying, get off the seat. But to whom is Pilate going to yield the seat? If he yields the seat of judgment to someone else, he's no longer in charge. He no longer has the power. So Pilate has to choose to defer to his wife and this dream that she had or convict Jesus based on no evidence based on the will of the Ochlos. This is why you couldn't pay me enough to be president of the United States, let alone a governor in Judea. Because the power, the lust to keep that power, can completely destroy you. But the chief
1: priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Bar Abbas and to put Jesus to death. There you go. Instead of preaching the Torah, they had a campaign of persuasion and marketing in order to inspire people to murder the Christ. There you go. On full display, the worthless shepherds spoken of by the prophets. In plain Greek, for all of Alexander's children to read, digest, and vomit back up. These are the worthless shepherds foretold by Zechariah. They are literally injuring the crowds and stirring the crowds to violence and corruption when they should be preaching the things that make for peace. They are not God's priests and elders, Richard. They are part of Caesar's mob. They are just people attending the circus, calling out for blood in the Colosseum. It's a big joke. It's a tragedy because of their duty to preach and to teach. They have failed. It's the greatest failure in the whole story.
0: You know, Father, about how often you have to hear, hey, Father, you're not being practical. Father, we need to be practical about this. We need to look at this practically. These chief priests are very practical. Ideally, Pilate is sitting on his judgment throne. So in a court of law, you would try to convince the judge of Jesus' guilt, and you would go about it through the course of justice. But they're practical. They know that Pilate does not listen to justice. He does not listen to good arguments. He does not care about innocence. He listens to the crowds. So who do the chief priests decide they need to persuade? Not Pilate. They'll persuade the crowds because the crowds will always persuade Pilate. If you got the crowds, then you got the governor. Why bother with the governor? Because if the crowds agree with you, And they can convince the governor, you've got the crowds and the verdict you want. If you just convince the governor, you don't necessarily have the crowds. The chief priests are very practical, and they're very good at what they do. It's just that what they do is wicked, which is vying for earthly power. But
1: the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Bar Abbas. There it is. Let's ask the people to give us their opinion. Let's get some feedback. Let's let the people choose. Power to the people. That's how it sounds to me. Let's let the mob decide. It's important to get their perspective. No, it's not. No, it's not. How is the perspective of the mob better than the perspective of the tyrant? And I'm saying this specifically to my own people, the Americans, the country with a proud history of lynchings. Shall we take a vote to see what we should do with this man? Or shall we consult the law? And ultimately, not your secular law that we learned recently can be shunned and overturned because ultimately your written law isn't enough. It's the power vested in the person of the king. That is why you have a court and a judge. Otherwise, why do you need a Supreme Court? You can just solve it with the president, and we can just decide, did you follow the policy or not? No, there is a judge still who rules. You still have the function of king in the United States. Are you kidding me? And what Scripture is telling you is that your king is no king, because there is an ultimate king who keeps his own counsel on appeals, and the decision rests with him, which means the buck does stop. So all this business about the importance of getting the opinion of the people and trusting the people is a betrayal. Everybody knows that if you care about the people, if you want to be for the people, to love them and to care for them, you have to be against yourself and not take counsel with the people, but take counsel with wisdom. Because the correct thing, the righteous thing, almost always systematically goes against the thing that we want out of our selfishness. Even Pilate's wife, who seems to want the correct thing, ultimately only wants the correct thing because of what will happen to her. Everybody has their own interest at heart. Only God... Seated in the heavens on his throne is the one who loves the human race. The human race doesn't love the human race. I love that expression in our tradition, Richard. When we refer to Christ as the philanthropos, we say the only lover of the human race, the only lover of mankind. It's a very beautiful expression. We can't repeat it enough because we imagine that we know what it means to love the human race, but we don't. We talk about loving the human race. We talk about loving the people. That's the language of politicians, but the politicians love themselves and the mob loves itself. Not one of us actually care about our neighbor, let alone the community let alone the Lord's flock.
0: And this passage is clearly a warning to those of us who live in democracies because the will of the people is wicked and it's responding to a wicked decision of the governor and it's based on whoever happens to be most persuasive, which is the chief priests, Pilate's wife is not persuasive to the crowds, so the crowds don't say, yes, we'll do what Pilate's wife says. No, they said, yes, we'll do what Pilate's wife says. No, they say, okay, we'll do what the chief priests say. They only are persuadable. They don't automatically follow Scripture. And this is why in Hosea 4, The priests have a sacrosanct calling, vocation, to teach Torah to the people, and that's it. Now, in our democracy, all it is is about who can convince whom. And it can be based on something stupid. The Republicans convince you of something stupid, the Democrats convince you of something stupid, and whichever one you're more convinced of is the way that you vote. Now, do we assume that everybody has a correct conscience? I guess we, that's the assumption of democracy. But if no one is teaching righteousness, if no one is teaching a law that supersedes humanity, if no one is teaching a law that breaks tribe, that breaks comfort, that breaks wealth, then we're just going to be following our own biological urges for more power. Beware of the persuasive voices. This is why I'm always uncomfortable with social media because it's based on trafficking in feelings with no data, with no thinking, with no complexity. If it can fit onto a meme, it's persuasible. We had all the memeifiers who got a president elected. When Trump was elected, they had a party for all these meme creators because they're the ones who got Trump elected. A bunch of people who create memes. Now we know that every president is going to depend on memes. I'm not just saying Trump. The next Democrat candidate's going to have to have their own meme creators for more drivel to come out to persuade the people. So follow scripture. Do not listen to the mouths of politicians. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ?
1: They all said, crucify him and he said why what evil has he done but they kept shouting all the more saying crucify him stavrocito 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 that's what they kept shouting and i wanted to read the two verses together so you would get the feel of the intensity building Stavrocito. It's a mob. We are in the arena. This is the beginning of the persecutions. They are shouting for blood. They want blood. They want their champion, Bar Abbas... That's the irony of him being a criminal. They want their champion, the son of the father, and they want the Lord's anointed, the son of man, to be exterminated so that they can have their victory. They want their universal God to be victorious, but the God they're choosing is Caesar. They're choosing the god of Pilatos, they're choosing a god who conquers with crosses and chariots and pillaging and rape. That's what they want, Rich. The funny thing about the god they're choosing is that he's pitiful. This exposes how pitiful Caesar is, because we all know in the story of the rise of the Caesars that it's just a big joke. They're just a bunch of crowd pleasers. What should I do, people? Why should I? Why do you want to kill Jesus? He hasn't done anything wrong. What should I do? Oh, do I really have to kill him? I guess, because I want to stay governor. Oh, shoot. Oh, darn. He was such a nice guy. I really don't mean it, Jesus, but if I don't, they they won't let me stay governor. What should I do? Uh, It's disgusting. And if you don't get it, I feel sorry for you.
0: (laughs) Pilate truly is a pathetic character in this because it's exactly the whining that he's doing. Please give me some evidence. Give me some evidence. He's sitting on the throne of judgment and he's saying, please give me some evidence so I can convict him. The chief priests were like, let's go out and find some witnesses to see if we can find some evidence to convict him. This is the problem. Everybody keeps looking for evidence to convict him. They can't find it. But they can convict him anyway, which shows the whole law of the Jew and the Gentile as a farce. Because human beings cannot be just. Human beings cannot be just. Boom. That's the point. Human beings can't be just. In Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, they don't cry out in Greek, they cry out in Aramaic, Yitzdalev, Yitzalev, may he be crucified. Now, here's the thing that was very sad about that movie, if I can go on an aside for a moment, because in that movie, they actually did not translate that piece of the Aramaic. They had subtitles during the Aramaic, but that part they didn't. But, you know, it's good to come in knowing a little bit of Aramaic when you go to a Mel Gibson movie, of course. And the reason they didn't want to do it is because anti-Semites have used that talking about how the Jews are the Christ killers. In Matthew... There is nothing to indicate that these people are Jewish. There is nothing to indicate anything about these people except that they are the mob. The mob is guilty. Whatever religion they are, it is not specific. They're persuadable by the chief priests, but that doesn't indicate anything either. Because truly they are following a biological, human lust for power, given to them by Pilate and seasoned and flavored by the chief priests so they make it tasty for them to do what the chief priests want. The chief priests do not need evidence. They need the crowds. Pilate does not need evidence. He needs the crowds. The crowds, in their ignorance, And their pathetic desire for power are the ones who truly sit on the seat of judgment, which, as you said, Father, is a flock without a shepherd. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as
1: literature. Thanks for listening.
0: The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.